0: Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ's followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Philippians, this little letter to you about this church that probably had the greatest impact on the Apostle Paul of any of the churches that are found across the pages of the New Testament. And I think these first 11 verses, which we're going to be looking at this morning, will, will help us see why that claim can be made. So if, you've, if you're there, if you're not there, turn quickly there. And let's read the first five verses together as we start this letter. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, especially in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That kind of sound like a thank you note you'd write to somebody who you really appreciate. That's really what Philippians is, by the way. It's a, it's a thank you letter. He's remembering all these things, as verse 3 says, that uh, have occurred between him and these Philippian believers over a significant number of years. And as he contemplates, as those memories kind of flood back into his mind, even as he pens this uh, little note, it's just one of thank you, thank you, thank you. There was all kinds of circumstances between him and them, that made this a letter to rejoice in, and a thank you letter. They were a very, very special people. He calls them, if you'll notice in verse 1, saints, doesn't he? And uh, I'd like to stop for just a moment and explore that word a little bit. It's a word that is a rich word, but unfortunately it's gone through some radical altercations in its original meaning. I mean by that today we associate a saint um, more with what is on a Pope's job description. You know, it's something a Pope does, kind of like what kings used to do. They used to knight people. A Pope, he makes people saints, right? That's kind of what we think about when we hear the word saint. It speaks of somebody who's removed from the rest of us, uh, somebody who's super religious, super pious, has super achievements on their resume, especially of the religious kind. But that doesn't seem to fit here. I mean, he starts this letter here in the first century calling a whole church, saints. They couldn't all have been like that. They seem to be just ordinary people, but he calls them saints. What does he mean? Well, I believe this word saint is a really powerful word, and it's intended to be used by an apostle for these people as well as used for us people to paint a vision for our lives. The word saint here is the Greek word hagios, and the word literally means to be set apart for a very special purpose. Well, in the word, it wasn't a word that was just used in religious quarters in the first century, but when you would use the word hagios, you were talking about something that you were going to set apart for a very special purpose. You might have a certain picture that you want to use hagios for a very special purpose. And so when he uses the word saint here, that's what he's talking about. What that allows me to do is to walk into an audience like this, and where are the carols in the audience? Just raise your hand. If your name is Carol, raise your hand. Okay, there's one, several more carols. I could call you Saint Carol. I really could. And you may say, no, that doesn't fit me. I'm an ordinary person. No, you're not. No, you're not. You've been set apart for a very special use. Uh, who are the Bobs here in the audience besides me? Just raise your hand, Bob. Bob, Bob, where are you? Okay, see you, Bobs out there. Bob, Saint Bob, That's who you are. That's right. He said, "I just doesn't fit me." Yeah, it does. If you know Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ has done His work in you, you're a saint. Not because you necessarily have reached some ultimate pinnacle of spirituality, but because you've been set apart, whether you know it or not, for a very special use. Everyone here is Saint (laughs) You. Everybody here has a very special purpose. Some of us may say, I just can't hardly believe that. Believe it. That's how this letter starts. And if Paul were writing a letter to Fellowship Bible Church, he would say to all the saints at Fellowship Bible Church, because God did not redeem you. God did not die for you. God did not claim you not to use you. He has a vision. And every time I hear the word saint, I see a vision of ministry. That's what's really being painted here. Now, God certainly had a vision for these Philippians. And when he set them apart, there was something special for them to do as well. Uh, we know they were special now looking back even more than they knew it. Uh, historically speaking, these Philippians were the very first church to be established on the continent of Europe. Do you know that? That's a little tidbit, but it's an important tidbit. I read this week in the newspaper where archaeologists have been working and they discovered some remains and they have kind of changed the date on which they think uh, Homo sapiens first moved from Africa into the continent of Europe. And now they say that that occurred much earlier than previously dated. Well, you know, we do not have to have any doubt when Christianity first came to the continent of Europe because they came through these people. I wrote in my Bible next to where it says the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, I wrote the first Christian church of Europe. That's who they are. You know, we have First Baptist Church here, and it literally means that it was the First Baptist Church. You have Second Presbyterian right up the street. It's the Second Presbyterian Church here in Little Rock. This was the first Christian church of all of Europe. This is how Christianity came to the continent of Europe. Now this little town, Philippi, it was a very important town. It wasn't a real large city. It was more of a Roman military outpost Uh, Rome had really stocked it with its citizens and its culture and uh, it was a very strategic center. That's maybe why Paul first went there when he came to the continent of Europe. It was founded by King Philip. Uh, King Philip was Alexander the Great's dad and he founded it. And until the first church, first Christian church of Europe was established there, the only real claim to fame for Philippi was a great battle that was fought outside its uh, city limits. It's when Anthony and Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus the Caesar that Jesus, you know, was born under his reign. They met the forces of Brutus and Cassius in a great battle in 42 BC, the rebels, and defeated them and that's how Octavian became Caesar Augustus. Now, some of you remember at least Brutus, right? From high school Shakespeare, et tu Brute? Okay, well, Brutus got his outside Philippi. That's where he got defeated that time. So that's the only claim of fame this city really had until Paul and three of his companions on a second missionary, missionary journey come into this city and God had led them there. They didn't know how to start or where to begin. I mean, really, can you imagine landing from Palestine on the shores of Europe and you're going to start churches there? And so Acts 16 kind of tells us how this first church got started. I'd like you to turn there. Keep your finger in Philippians, but let's turn back to Acts 16. Since we're going to do this whole letter, I think it'd be good if we did a little historical research for ourselves, and I want to read the founding of this church and who comprised this first church in Europe. Acts chapter 16, and we'll start in verse 11. You can call this your history lesson for this morning. In verse 11, Luke, who is one of the companions traveling with Paul in this missionary journey, writes, Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis. And from there we went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that we would, that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman... Named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And she and her household had been baptized. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination... Uh, That word divination refers to Python, this uh, Greek god, a dragon god, and um, this gal happened to be demon-possessed as well, but who having a spirit of divination met us, who were bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bond servants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. I mean, gosh, here's a witness from a demon-possessed woman. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her master saw that, their hope of profit was gone They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Isn't that not amazing? And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's chains were unfastened And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Well, that's the church right there. That's how it started with some incredible events. But I want you to notice the three families that made up this original church because it's hard to imagine a less homogeneous group. First, there's, if you'll stay there in Acts 16, if you'll notice, there's Lydia. Uh, Lydia, it says, was a seller of purple fabrics. Now, it's important that you see that phrase because that phrase is there to talk about how expensive these items were. Purple fabrics were incredibly expensive in the first century. And by making that statement, what Luke is kind of alerting us to is that this Woman was a woman of means and of socioeconomic status. I mean, if you were writing this in the 20th century, you would say, and Lydia, who was vice president of sales at Dillard's, so on and so forth. See, and you'd go, wow, she's got some money. She's in a pretty high standing position. Uh, That's who was first brought to Christ. And uh, she must've had a lot of money because, you know, she was from Thyatira, it says, that's in Turkey. That's where she lived but she also had a condo there in Philippi because she invited him into her house there. So she was a woman of some substance. Then on the other end, as far as you can go to the other end, the next person he meets and wins is this slave girl who, as I said, was a priestess of uh, this python, this Dagon who um, was brought into fortune telling for her masters and it says she was a slave. We know from the first century, a lot of these gals were brought in as slaves through narcotics. They would hook them on this narcotic bark and over time use them. And they just, they really were, they were just like animals. And they would go out kind of in a carnival-like way and do fortune telling and make money. And so she's kind of a streetwalker, a prostitute for her pimps. That's who she is. And she's as far down at the other end as possible. That's the second family of this Philippian church. And then in the middle is this jailer, kind of a blue collar, postal worker, government employee, you know, just a guy doing his job with security, let me have my money and go home and, you know, that kind of deal. And he's probably just kind of a routine kind of individual, doesn't want any risk, got that job because it maintains a certain security from the Roman government, and he just wants to get through it and retire. And yet Paul steps into his life with this earthquake, shakes things up, and you'll notice when he thought he lost his job because the prisoners escaped and his security was gone, what do you want to do? Just want to fall on the sword and commit suicide because everything that he had ever wanted was gone, his security. So there they are. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ fused these three families into the first Christian European church. The jailer. The jailer found that there was more to life than job security. And I say that because, you know, there's really... Some of us here today who, if nothing else, you need to hear that. There's more to life than your job. There really is. You need to open up. Open up your eyes. Look around. There's there's something even worth risking your job for. That's what he found out. There's something that's important enough to risk your job. And by the way, he risked his job when that very night he took Paul and those men out of prison, bound their wounds, and brought them into his own home. He risked everything with that. But there's something worth risking your job for. That's what the jailer found out. The slave girl, she found out what she had probably always wanted to know, and that was that someone out there really did care. That there was somebody out there that just didn't use people. There was somebody out there that just didn't exploit people. Somebody just used them like Kleenex like Toffler said in his book, Future Shot, and they just blow into them, use them, and then throw them away. That's all she'd ever experienced. But here she found that somebody really cared, changed her life. Some of you need to know that everybody out there is just not using people. Some of you need to hear that there's people out there who really do love with an authentic love. Then there was Lydia. And Lydia, this woman of means, she found out that there's far more to life and personal fulfillment than just success and status and power. You know, this last week, uh, some of you probably noticed that there was a new kind of day, Take Your Daughters to Work Day. Uh, Ms. Corporation uh, sponsored a Take Your Daughters to Work Day, and men and women all over the country took their daughters to work, and as I understand it, it was to raise the self-esteem of young girls concerning the marketplace that they're wanted and needed out there. Well, here's a real modern woman in the first century that would fit real well in the 20th century. And what she found out was that there was more to life than just a good job, that a good job can't fill the spiritual void that you have in your life, no matter how good it is and how successful it may be, that a good job can't answer the question, what is the meaning of life, that a good job is not an end in itself. She found out. There's more to it than that. And she embraced the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it changed her whole life and her whole perspective on life, including her job. That's who made up the first church. These people found this new life that was bigger than their old life. And this church is now birthed. And now Paul writes this little letter, this little thank you note that we call Philippians. And it's not 51 AD when he founded the church. And this is important. This is 10 years later. Be sure to mark that. This letter came in 61 AD. So for 10 years, Paul had been interacting with these people from time to time. And notice in verse 5, he says this statement to them. He says, you know, I'm really thanking God in all my remembrance. And in verse 5, he says, in view of, this is what I have in my mind when I thank God, your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That means for 10 years. That's what he's saying. For 10 years, I've been thanking God as I think over these 10 years, what a great job you've done. Now we can get a little sense of what a great job they've done by sampling some other verses here in Philippians. First of all, look at verse 27 of chapter one because according to Philippians 1:27, for 10 years, these people had lived out the gospel with spiritual integrity, with unity. In verse 27, it says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. I think a better translation, because this word conduct yourselves, this middle voice verb is a present tense, and you could translate this this way, continue to conduct yourselves in a manner, because you've been doing it, so keep on conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and that makes me smile. You're doing a good job. You're conducting yourself with spiritual integrity. That's why this church is a good model, by the way. You know what people all over America need to see? They don't need to hear great messages. They don't even need great worship. They need to see real Christians. That's what they need to see. People of continuous spiritual integrity. That's what these people had, and that's why Paul smiled. He also smiled because according to Philippians 4, if you'll turn over to Philippians 4, these people had sacrificed in a number of ways for the advance of the gospel in Europe all through these ten years. Look at verse 15. It says, "...and you yourselves also know, you Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia," that is, from your region... No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. See, you stood out above them all. You were real faithful to get involved. Look at verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Paul didn't go out, you know, wanting to have people supporting. He needed it. He didn't demand it, even as an apostle. But he got it from these people because they had a self-giving nature. That's a great church, and it made him smile. Notice in chapter 2, verse 25, uh, they sent one of their very best to comfort Paul as he proclaimed the gospel in Rome. Now, by the way, Paul now is in prison in Rome. Uh, Nero is on the throne, not Caesar Augustus, and Nero hates Christians. In fact, in just a few years, Nero will light up the skies of Rome with Christians rolled in pitch on pegs. That's where Nero's headed. And so Paul now is in prison. And what this Philippian church did is hearing of Paul's plight in prison, it took one of probably its very choice servants, not just money, it sent one of its people to go and comfort and spend time with Paul. Notice verse 25, Paul says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also, and here's the key words, your messenger and minister to my needs. Now, Paul is actually sending Epaphroditus back. But the Philippians sent him to comfort and to be with Paul during his defense of the gospel before Roman authorities. And somewhere in that time, evidently, uh, Epaphroditus got sick. That's what verse 26 tells us. Became homesick and physically sick, even to the point of death. So Paul sends him back. But these people were willing to share their people with this apostle. That made him smile as well. And so it was this ongoing partnership Uh, in the gospel and their faithfulness to Paul over these 10 years, that Paul could say, from that day until now, you've really been a joy. You make me smile because you've gotten involved. Now, it's with this 10-year track record that we come to verse 6. And here he issues a statement of confidence Look at verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We just sung that just a few minutes ago. And uh, certainly that verse makes a tremendous statement about the commitment of God to us. But I have found that some people use this in a different way when they hear that. They're sitting out in the audience, maybe they're singing this. I've heard people quote this verse in a way that says this. So listen carefully. They say, On the basis of 1 Philippians 1, 6, no matter what I do, no matter how I live or the choices I make, because of God's commitment to to me, as verse 6 says, He will complete me. He will finish me out. I won't lose anything because of His commitment to me. It's guaranteed. So it doesn't matter what I do, say, think, or choose. He's going to accomplish His perfect will in me. And by saying that, it's kind of like, well, not so I can relax. Well, I don't think that's what that verse is saying. So I want to stop here for just a moment, plant the flag, and uh, walk back through this verse and tell you how I think it, it really is in its proper context. Certainly, if you'll look here at verse 6, this verse assumes and affirms that our salvation was due to the initiation of God. You see it there in verse 6? It says, for I am confident in this very thing that he who began the work, He started the work. There's no doubt about that. That's clear. God began the work. We didn't move towards God ever. You and I didn't do that. Have you thought back about that? There was no movement of me to God. It was God's movement to me that started the whole work of salvation uh, in me. That's that's the whole point, that He started that good work. Recently, uh, I uh, read of an ordination Ceremony that occurred kind of in the back hills of Tennessee between a fairly academic group and a, an a uneducated country preacher. And in this ordination service, they asked him, uh, in starting out, they asked him to tell how he became a Christian. And his answer, in kind of the Tennessee dialect, was, Well, I done my part, and then God done his part. And uh, one of the members of the committee, somewhat formal, Calvinist, in his theological orientation, wanted to press that a little further. He says, well, now, wait a minute. Tell me how God done, I mean, did, uh, hit uh, how you did your part. Tell me how you did your part. Because, you know, Calvinists, they're not sure about that part. And uh, the old country preacher thought for a moment and he said, well, my part in salvation was to run as fast as I could away from God. And his part was to run as fast as he could till he caught me and laid hold of me. That's the way it worked. And you know, if you think about it, there's a lot of truth in that. We didn't move towards God. God began the good work in us, didn't he? I like what C.S. Lewis wrote when he talked about his own conversion. He said he was dragged into the kingdom kicking and screaming. (laughs) And there are some of us that actually came to Christ that way. The last thing we said we'd ever do is get religious. And yet, somewhere, somehow God came knocking and tracked us down. And even against every defense system, we found that it was a love we couldn't resist. We entered into that relationship with him. He begins that work. That part is absolutely correct. But after our conversion, God's work is with us, not in spite of us. And here's where I would take a difference with some who look at this verse and say, God's going to do it anyway. You know, if you look through the rest of Scripture, there are a number of verses that will tell you that we can resist His work in us. Isn't that true? There's a number of places where Scripture will say we can refuse to obey His word that's given to us, that we can thwart His perfecting process in us, and that we can show up at the day of Christ Jesus, the day that's mentioned here in verse 6, saved because He began the work. So we stand there in front of Jesus Christ saved, but we stand there an unfinished work, an incomplete work, a partial work from what God originally intended to accomplish. So whose fault is that? It's not God's fault. Notice it says in verse 6, he who began a good work, he's going to, and I'm going to translate it literally now, will keep on perfecting it. That means that he who began a good work, he's going to keep working to complete it no matter what you do so that when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, however incomplete you might look because you've refused and resisted and thwarted his perfecting process, the God of this universe will stand next to you and there will be no doubt to anyone that he did everything he intended to do in your life, to get you to the place that He wanted you to be. He guarantees His effort, but here's what I want you to hear. This verse does not guarantee the outcome. It guarantees God's effort, but not the outcome. And if the work is not complete, it will not be because God didn't give a good effort. It will be because, for whatever reason, you and I chose not to cooperate. Now, I want to put this in context in, in terms of the Philippians. Now, look at it again with me. Verse 6. I believe Paul's statement of confidence about these Philippians is more of a prediction than a theological guarantee. It's based on the fact that he's watched them perform for 10 years since their conversion. They have faithfully cooperated with God. And it's on that basis that Paul could say with confidence these words, I am confident that He who began this work in you, and He's working to complete it, that because you're cooperating, He'll accomplish everything He intended to do in your life. That's my confidence. That's my interpretation. Now, here's the application. If somebody looked at your life over the last couple of years, and they looked at the performance and the cooperation, they could really get close to you, that you've had with God and His Word, and His church, and His people, on the basis of that, could they write verse 6? Could they say, because of what I've seen in you, because of how I've watched you, I am confident that He who started the work without you, now working with you, will be able to fully accomplish all the things that He wants to do in you, so that when you stand in front of the judgment seat with Jesus, your partner's. Partners in righteousness. Could they say that? See, I think that's the challenge that exudes out of verse 6. There's confidence here, but there's also that challenge. Now, it's with that in mind that Paul offers a very special prayer starting in verse 9. But I have pondered over that prayer now for about six days. And the more I do, the more I think, this is really a great prayer for the 20th century church. This is a prayer of spiritual growth. This is, a, this is a kind of a prayer, an offering to God where He wants His church to stand before God in the day of Christ Jesus, bearing all kinds of luscious fruit, not a fake, sincere, and totally blameless because of their spiritual integrity. That's the prayer. I even think this week at the National Day of Prayer, if you come to the old sanctuary and sit in there to pray and to ask God to help our land, One of the things you ought to pray is to ask God to help our church. You ought to ask God to do these things, these very things in us, that we might abound in love more and more, he says. What does he mean there in verse 9? Well, the love that he mentions in verse 9, I think, has more to do with actions than feelings. I don't think when Paul says, when I want your love to abound more, he's thinking of just good feelings. Now, certainly that might be a part of it. But I think in his mind, he's thinking about all the things that these Philippians had tangibly done. I like the phrase that love is action. You know, how they had cared for one another. How they had reached out to one another. How they had sacrificed for him and for others and served and uh, submitted to the will of God. I think that's what he's talking about here. That kind of love. He says, I hope it continues to abound more and more in you. And then notice, verse 9, he adds a little phrase. We want to stop and look at that. In all knowledge and discernment." What does he mean by that? Why does he add the phrase to love all knowledge and discernment? It's a good question, isn't it? See I think what he's doing is he's trying to separate out for us the difference between love over here and loving well over here. And the difference between love as we know it generally in our country and loving well The thing that separates those two is knowledge and discernment. You know, love can be a powerful emotion. It is like a powerful river. And if it's not harnessed and directed, it just flows over everything and it becomes a negative force rather than a positive force. And that's really what Paul's getting at. He says, hey, I want your river of love to be bounded, you know, and these banks need to be harnessing and directing this love that you have, and it needs to be directed by knowledge and discernment. And if you do that, you won't just love, you'll love well. You know, as a pastor watching people, I see a lot of people try to love others, but sometimes what they think is love for those standing around, it's really hurt. Their intentions were good. Their motivations were were right, but the impact was wrong. Let me give you some for instances, some for examples. We may call it love when we, maybe as providers, men and women, say that we're going to provide more money for our family. We may call that love. When in fact loving well may be providing them more time, not money. We may call it love when we say yes, but loving well may be in an emphatic no. We may call it love if we try to rescue the situation and keep holding everything up, working harder and harder to make it stay in place. We may call that love. But you know, there are a lot of people around us who would say, you know, if you'd love well, you'd step back and let it all collapse. That'd be real love. See, we may call it love when we shield someone. Someone from pain, when real love may be exposing them to pain. We may call it love feeling good, but loving well may just simply be doing good and having feelings that are, in a sense, not good at all. It may seem like work, but that might be real love. We may call it love by doing more for somebody, but loving well may be actually in doing Less for someone. We may call it love solving the problem, but loving well may just simply be in feeling the hurt of that person, not solving the problem. To love well, you need more than passion. See, to love well, you need knowledge and you need discernment. You need to know how to figure it all out. And the question is, where do you get knowledge and discernment? Where do you get those things? Well, I would say that you get knowledge. I think Paul had in mind, when he used that word knowledge, this book. You know, at Christmas, we uh, bought our family, Sharon and I, a stereo. I've always been kind of afraid to buy any appliance or things because they always come disassembled. And on this particular Christmas, in fact, I just left it in the box and put a bow on it because I didn't want that all-night Christmas Eve experience that I've had in the past. And I just thought, well, I'll just give them the box and we'll open it up and work it together. But it's always interesting. You open up a thing, all these different parts, and there's a book. And if you follow the book, it'll work. I remember we bought a ping pong table. It had like 5,000 parts. And the book was about that big. You get a book with a ping pong table. You buy a car. And what are they going to hand you as you drive out of the dealership? A book, aren't you? And when you get an insurance policy and you want to know what all the different Things that you have and uh, things that are covered, not covered, the insurance salesman hands you a book, right? When you get a life, you get a book. That's what you get. You get this book. Yeah. And this book is to help you figure out how to live this life. It's giving you knowledge to figure out how to live. And if you have no idea of what the instruction manual says, then you're just guessing your way. And you're going to try to love people, but you're going to hurt them. You're going to try to prop up your husband when you ought to let him fall, ladies. You're going to try to keep paying the credit card of your 25-year-old son when you need to stop. And he needs to get a job. And a life. You know? But sometimes you don't know that. I've sat before people who've got PhDs and they could couldn't quit covering the mistakes of their 25-year-old son, but they thought that was love, and it was a tragic injury. Do you hear me? How do you know when to hurt and when to shield, when to prop up, when to let go? How do you know when to feel good and simply do good? How do you know that? I want to tell you, I have no place to point you but the instruction manual, the book, This is where knowledge is. And you can't love well without the book. But then he says, in all discernment. Where do you get discernment? Well, I want you to turn. Stay in Philippians and just turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to point you to a very undiscerning people, these Hebrews. It's interesting. We're going to look at chapter 5. Look at verse 12. It says, for by this time... Uh, that's also a time word, as you can see. Uh, the book of Hebrews was written 20 years after these people had become Christians. So they've been Christians 20 years, but unlike their Philippian counterparts, these Hebrews didn't bring a smile to any apostle. Here's why. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone else to teach you. The elementary principles of the Word of God. You're 20 years old in the faith, and this still is a mystery to you. You don't know the first thing about how to love a woman, how to love your children, how to work at your job, how to handle your finances, because you don't know anything about this book. 20 years, you're still a babe. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed. That word accustomed means has no feel for the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Picking up this book, you might as well be picking up a Latin dictionary. No feel for. But then notice verse 14. But solid food, the one who really can take in knowledge, that person is mature. And now here's the key phrase. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They have knowledge, that's the solid food, but how did they get discernment? Tell me, how? Practice, practice, practice. Practice. The only way a young boy gets out and learns how to throw the ball is what? Practice, practice, practice. The only person who gets his dissertation done has to go through years of what? Practice. It all follows the same way. And in the spiritual kingdom, the only way you know when to shield and when to harm, when to protect and when to hurt, when to support and when to draw back support in regards to people and loving them is by taking first this word in and then practicing till you become skilled in it. That's what he's praying for for these Philippians. Philippians. They're 10 years old, and he says, listen, my prayer is in all your actions. You will keep loving people in all kinds of ways, but that your love will grow in a rich soil of knowledge and discernment. Now listen, he says, now I'm going to promise you some results if you do that. Look at verse 10. He says, if you do that, then you'll be able to approve the things which are excellent. What does he mean there? He means this, you'll be able to, to choose the best things in life. Because that word approved means discernment, that you've tested it, you've tried it, you know what works and what doesn't work, and it allows you to choose the important from the unimportant, the good from the evil, the better from the best. You'll be able to do that. And then by doing that, there will come a day where you'll stand before Christ, and here's the other promise, you'll stand there sincere and blameless at that day, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God." Gosh, what a wonderful picture. It's kind of a tropical picture with all that fruit, you know? Standing there with this luscious fruit, having finished out the course of your life, not a fake, sincere. Not with a lot of scars, blameless. It's not necessarily gonna be easy, because let me tell you, in five years from the day this letter was written, a lot of these Philippians, they were on pitch, on lamppost. That's where they were. Some of them were in the Colosseum, Play things for lions. But they could stand before Jesus Christ blameless in the day to the glory and praise of God. He starts the letter saying, Hey, you bring a smile to my face. He ends the letter saying, There's a banquet coming where you can stand there and the band's gonna play and there's glory and there's praise from God to you because you're full of fruit. That's what brings a smile. This letter of Philippians teaches us how to bring a smile to God, too. And I want to end by asking us four questions. Kind of reviews these 11 verses, four reflective questions. Here would be the first one out of verse 1. Do you take the calling of saint seriously? That would be a good question. When I say that, the the kind of word that challenges you to figure out what your special usefulness to God is. Because you've been set aside for a special use. You know, when people come to Christ, and you can almost document this through studies, there's a growth climb for the first five years. I mean, they're on a growth climb. They're excited because they're finding out all the things God has done for them. But when you get five years out, there comes a critical turning point because somewhere out there, God's wanting to use you. And if you get out there and after you've used all his resources and you go, well, what now? What are you going to give me now? And he's going, no, what are you going to do now? That's a critical point for a Christian. And if you get out there and you don't find what God is going to use you to do, then your spiritual life becomes stale, it becomes stagnant, it becomes listless. And about the only thing you can do is look for some experience to kind of prop you up. But if you've got a cause, those people just keep right on going. That's the difference. That's the five-year difference. What does saint mean to you? Does it mean that you're set aside for a special use? Second question in verse 5. Am I participating in the advance of the gospel? You know, when a person comes to Christ, oftentimes the first thing they want to do is bring their husband or wife to Christ. They want to talk to their friends. But what are you like five or ten years out? Is there still a sense in which I want to make a difference and help other people come to Christ? Right now... For some of you who say, you know, I just don't have a lot of umph in my Christian life. I could give you one thing to do this year that would change all of that. And that is to take someone, friend, co-worker, through just a basic Bible study where you're helping them discover the gospel of Christ. And if they come to terms with that and receive Christ, your spiritual life will take off. It'll be like bread to a starving man participating in the advancement of the gospel, a common cause group where you're involved with others, trying to do things for other people, advancing the gospel, that will change your life. But doing nothing, it will take away the very smile that this letter is intended to bring to your face. Third question, verse nine, am I learning how to love well? Have the choices I've made recently, the actions I've taken recently, do they demonstrate knowledge, discernment, right priorities, or when I look back, do I see a lot of effort to love people? And I think all of us, we'd like to be loved and to love, but do a lot of our efforts just simply tragically come to a, to a dead end? Then we need to know this book. need to know it. Some of you with a marriage problem, great place to start would be that marriage conference, the family life conference. Be a good quick start. And then I think the last question is more of a deep, reflective question, and that is this. If the Apostle Paul were alive today, if he were sitting in Cummins Prison and he were thinking of you, would he smile? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this rich epistle. It's good to open it and to think about it, and especially good to visit a church that did a good job, that made a difference. And Lord, I pray for each of us that as we reflect over these, just these opening verses, that these questions that we've enumerated here at the end, that they might not be questions that we forget, but that we might really think through because they are key to bringing a smile to God's face and ours. Thank you for our time of worship here today. May it go with us through the week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.